We have embarked on a series of five messages for Holy Week, five lessons, of which this is the third. And we have discovered so far, just by way of brief review, that Jesus, on Palm Sunday, came into Israel in in fulfillment of the Messianic prophecy of the Messiah coming in lowly, riding on a colt, to the proclamation of the people of Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As we will discover in a future episode, those same people, however, who were crying out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, on Palm Sunday. On Good Friday, will be crying out, Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So the uh, cry of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord was certainly God-orchestrated. It was a, uh, a God-orchestrated uh, fulfillment that pointed to Jesus as Israel's true king. God's anointed, God's appointed, and God's ordained and only king of Israel. So Jesus has rode into Jerusalem, and he has now in a um, position acting as both judge and deliverer. And one of the themes of Mark chapter 11 is that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem represents both of those, represents both the end of that system in which Jesus is come to expose it and to judge it with all the authority of heaven. He is, after all, God's appointed king. He is, after all, God in the flesh. And we have learned that God himself, therefore, has come to his temple. And the fact that people did not recognize him as that does not change that fact. In fact, it puts them on the wrong side of the battle. Puts them on the side of a system that was designed, the the, um, sacrificial temple worship system, was designed to be a foreshadow. It was designed to be a type and shadow of the one who was to come, namely Jesus. It was designed to be a a pointer. It was designed to be an object lesson in everything that Jesus is and was and would be to Israel and to his people. But as we've discovered, that system itself has turned in on itself. Instead of being a system that pointed to Christ— It has hardened into a system that has its own self-preservation as its purpose. It's not there to glorify Christ. It's not there to honor Christ. It's not there to magnify Christ. It's not even there to acknowledge Christ. In fact, it's turned in on itself in such a way that it is in opposition to Christ. So in response to our Lord coming into Jerusalem and beginning to exercise his mission to restore the uh, true worship within Jerusalem, focused on him, that system, because it is not focused on him, is already rising up and seeking ways to destroy him, our text says. Now, this is a very important lesson for us on this Holy Week. Holy Week is a very uh, important time of reflection and solemnity, because this is not new, and this was not unique, I should say, to first century Judaism. In fact, this propensity 
for religious leaders to turn in on themselves and develop a system that hardens into a container of self-interests. It's so typical of man-made religion, even that which calls itself Christianity. Let me give you a brief example here. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul is uh, telling them, and we're beginning with verse 19, quote, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be in good spirits when I learn of your circumstances. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned about your circumstances. And listen to this carefully now. Verse 21. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. For they all seek after their own interests. Who are they all? Those Christian leaders within Philippi had already retreated into a system of self-preservation. A system, they were already hardening into a system in which they served their own interests and not those of Christ Jesus. And so Paul is saying, I'm having to send Timothy to you just so I can get an accurate read on your welfare. I can get an accurate read on what's going on with you. I can't trust your leaders to care for you. He will... Timothy will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. But as for your leaders, they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. So what we understand here is a principle that whether it's first century Judaism, apostate Judaism, not genuine Judaism, but apostate Judaism, or it's 21st century apostate Christianity, masking as Christianity. It's the same spirit. Apostate Christianity of the 21st century is the same spirit that was at work within apostate Judaism of the 1st century. It's a spirit in which the angel of light has been able to seduce and create a system unto itself that looks fruitful, that looks good, that sounds good, that in our case, into the 21st century, uses Christian symbols, uses Christian Christian uh, uh, terminology, uh, sports credentialed clergy, people who act with great authority and speak with great conviction, but their interests are not those of Christ Jesus. They're not there to build up God's people, to edify God's people, to equip you, to bring you into spiritual maturation. They are there to use you to support their system. Their interests are their own self-interests. And it's the same demonic-inspired spirit behind that mentality that was at work in Jerusalem. And Jesus has come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, both to ultimately be the as high priest as well as king, to be the ultimate sacrifice that delivers his people from sin and death and the power of the evil one. The power of the evil one that is represented in this system, this apostate religious system that's masking as Judaism, pretends to be Judaism, uses the, the terminologies of Judaism, has all of the appearances of being fruitful religion, but is in fact only worthy 
of cursing. And this is what we discovered in our last episode in Mark chapter 11 when Jesus had uh, left after coming in on Sunday. He's now moving into Jerusalem on the following morning and he's hungry, you recall. And when he saw this fig tree that had leaves, and I told you in that episode that that when the fig tree bore leaves, that was an indicator that it has, in fact, uh, borne fruit. If a fig tree has leaves, it has fruit. It's the evidence. It's, it's part of the fruit, fruitfulness of that tree. But strangely enough, this fig tree had all the appearances. It had all the leaves. But when Jesus went to eat from it, it was fruitless. There was no fruit. And so it became very symbolic of fruitless Israel, especially fruitless Jerusalem and its religious structure. And Jesus cursed it. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. So this is the sobriety and and very sobering reality that we're encountering, encountering this Holy Week is the exposing and the realization that not just first century Judaism, but at work today, our religious systems masking as Christianity that actually are hardened into a system of self-interests and which actually oppose Jesus Christ and his interests, his purposes. And we want to be very careful this Holy Week to hear what the Lord is saying here and to ensure that we are on the right side of this battle because it is certain these systems can oppose Christ then and today but they're opposing the king of the universe they're opposing him who has all authority on heaven and on earth given to him by the father they're opposing God's anointed king and so we know how this battle is going to turn out And my concern for you and I both is that we affirm this week that we are on the right side of this battle, that we are standing with our King, Jesus, by grace, through faith. It will be mercy. When we realize that we are standing on the right side of this battle, please make note that it is by grace alone. Everything in us, apart from Christ, would be standing within the system would be opposing Christ. In our own natural self, we would be standing with those who opposed Christ. But it's by grace, through faith, in accord with God's tender mercies, that we would find ourselves on the side of Jesus and with him, because he's called us to himself. And the question we have in our text today is, Are we listening? And what I mean by that is after Jesus had cursed the fig tree, saying, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, the text goes on to say this one very important line, and please hear me carefully. Quote, and his disciples were listening. End quote. So the question before you and I today is this. We've had two lessons so far. This is the third. 
the question before you and I by the text, the text is telling us, asking us, calling us, questioning us, are you listening? I just said that those who are with Jesus, those who are truly his disciples, are those who are our soul because of grace and the tender mercies of God. And the evidence that we are on the right side of this battle is, are you listening? Are you taking to heart what Jesus is doing here in this Holy Week? Or are you merely observing from a distance? Are you within the system that is more interested in its own self-preservation than in magnifying the purposes of God in his Son. If you are with Christ, if you are his disciple, you will be listening. So this is how you can know. I just stressed it, didn't I? I stressed it very carefully, that you must be clear about what side of this battle you're on, and you will know, you can have the assurance that by mercy alone, that you are in on the right side of this battle, you are standing with Jesus as his disciple, as he exposes and condemns and judges these system, this system of Judaism, and our system today as well, because you are listening. Now this is a very serious, uh, a very common, even prevailing theme throughout the New Testament. The, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It says, and his disciples were listening. Well, initially, what were they listening to? They were listening to the fact that Jesus had just cursed the fig tree. So let's turn now to our text, Mark chapter 11. We're going to jump forward a little bit into verses 19 through 26. Mark chapter 11, verses 19 through 26. And when evening had come, and when evening came, they were going out of the city. So they come into the city. Jesus had encountered this fig tree. He had cursed it because it only gave the appearance of fruitfulness, just as the system in Jerusalem had, was worthy only of a curse because it was an apostate, fruitless system. The disciples were listening they spent the day, and now they're going back out of the city. And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots. Listen, when Jesus curses something, it's cursed. It isn't a superficial cursing. That fig tree, within hours, had withered down to its very root. When Jesus curses a religious system that stands in opposition to him, it is cursed to its very roots. God does not deal with false religion superficially. He is not indifferent to it, and he acts to condemn it, to curse it, and it is cursed to the very roots of its own existence. That fig tree was no more. That fig tree was done. Verse 21, And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed was has withered. And Jesus answered and said to him, 
have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. For this reason I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. End quote. So let's take a, a brief look here now at this conversation between Peter, who represented, this, he was a spokesman for all the disciples. So Peter said, wow, this fig tree has withered up. Look, the fig tree you curse. So see, the disciples were listening previously that morning. They listened to him curse that tree. And they are now saying, they acknowledge that he had cursed it. It didn't, it didn't uh, go over their heads. It wasn't lost on them that he had cursed that tree. And now they're astonished by the fact that it shriveled up and withered so quickly. And Jesus' response in that is, interestingly, have faith in God. So what are we to make of that? The system in Jerusalem was fruitless because it wasn't a system of faith. It wasn't a system that represented the Abrahamic faith. It wasn't a system that represented faith at all. It didn't have a proper view of God. It didn't have a proper view of themselves. See, and genuine biblical faith will do both of those. Genuine biblical faith will always provide you a proper view, a biblical view of the nature and the character of God in His holiness and His justice and His love. And a proper view of yourself in relation to your Creator, in relation to this holy and just and yet loving and merciful God. He is both. God is holy. He is just. And He is merciful. And He is loving. God is both, as we have learned in another lesson, he is both kind and he is severe. And both of those, we have to have a well-rounded biblical view of who God is and then reason downward to understand who we are, both apart from Christ and as those in Christ. We have to understand a biblical view of man, mankind, mankind in his sin apart from Christ and mankind in redeemed status of those in Christ. And Jesus is giving them an immediate uh, primer, if you will, in faith. He's saying, the, the system that I just cursed in this fig tree, symbol, symbolic of this fig tree, is not a system of faith. It is a system of works. It, is, didn't, it didn't understand the law properly. It didn't understand the law as a 
system uh, as a word from God that exposed sin and therefore drove us to God's remedy temporarily in the sacrificial system of the Levites and then being fulfilled and permanently and finally remedied in the great sacrifice that is to come on Good Friday. Instead, they understood the law to be given in order that it be a means to gain personal righteousness. The law was given because of transgressions, to expose transgressions and point us to Christ. But the law was deemed by Israel as their inheritance and the means by which they could gain the necessary righteousness to be found acceptable before God. And therefore, guess what? They would have no need of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord at all, at all, whatsoever. So, Jesus is telling Peter and other disciples, have faith in God. It's faith that is at works here. It is faith that is at issue here, as opposed to a, a, a an apostate system based upon self-righteousness, self-accrued righteousness by means of the law. This is the big deal. This is the challenge. This is what, this is what defines a self-interest, a self-apostate religious system. It is not faith, genuine faith. Remember, a faith that imparts to us a true knowledge of God in his holiness, in his justice, in his goodness, in his mercy, and therefore a true knowledge of ourselves, those who are outside of Christ and those who are in Christ. Instead, it, it serves to be a system in which no reliance upon God's mercy is even required. Let me give you an idea of what I mean elsewhere in Scripture. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says this about Israel. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is for their salvation. I testify about them, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Remember, knowledge begins where? In the mind. The gospel appeals first to the intellect, it's true knowledge as opposed to false knowledge. The gospel appeals to, to our mind as the gateway to the heart. We never want to stop in the mind. We want to understand the message of the gospel in our intellect, but our intellect is simply the gateway to the heart. It is the heart that is in the primacy. It is the heart that is the end goal of the gospel, a transformed heart. As Ezekiel 36 tells us, and the promise of the new covenant will be to remove a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. A heart of stone representing unbelief. A heart of flesh representing faith. The gift of faith. So, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now listen carefully, Romans 10.3. For not knowing about the righteousness of God 
and seeking to establish their own, their own what? Righteousness. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law, the end game, the, the, the goal of the law. For righteousness to everyone who believes. So I want to pause here for a moment and just help you get some clarity on what's at stake. What's at stake is a system that is hardened into its own self-interest and self-preservation that actually opposes Christ, that views the things of the law, the works of the law, not as it, the, the, the true work of the law to expose sin and drive us to Christ, but instead sees the law as a means by which we may gain the necessary righteousness to come to God on our own. As opposed to recognizing our desperate need for it to be set free by Christ. Let me give you one other quick example here. In John chapter 8, Jesus was speaking. And as he was speaking, many believed in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's seed, and have never yet been a slave to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. End quote. These are a people who professed belief in Jesus, but felt no need of him as Savior. These are people who professed a belief in Jesus, but it was a superficial profession because they were not in touch with their own need of him as a deliverer, as a Savior, as a complete Savior. They had confidence that he was the Messiah, but they also had confidence that they were okay without him as a Savior. They just wanted him to be the Messiah, the one who would deliver them politically and materially and restore Israel to its former glory as a sovereign nation, the envy of the world. They weren't interested in being delivered from sin. They had their own system. I hope you can see this. Jesus is saying, I am the only one who can set you free. And they're saying, free from what? We are children of Abraham. That's our confidence. Our confidence is in our ethnic and religious heritage. We don't understand. See, they had, they had their own system. They had hardened into a system in which instead of seeing 
them as themselves as children of Abraham and therefore children of faith. And then seeing Jesus as the object of that faith, the ultimate object of that Abrahamic faith. Instead, they put their confidence in the fact that they were children of Abraham. Now, what's the analogy for us today? It's people who are placing their confidence in the fact that they are part of a religious system. They're part of a religious heritage. I've been going to this church for all my life. I was raised in this denomination. My, my parents and my grandparents, I may be second or third or fourth generation. I'm, I'm, my husband's on the elder board. I volunteer. We are very active in the church. We are good Lutherans. We are good Baptists. We are good Presbyterians. Our confidence is in our system. Our confidence is in our being good Anglicans. That's where our, our rest is. And if we have taken that stance, we have missed the point. We're on the wrong side of this battle that's being laid out in Mark chapter 11. Just as those in John chapter 8 have missed the point. They didn't realize their need for Jesus as a Savior. In fact, they, they continued the argument through John chapter 8 that they are Abraham's children and therefore they are absolutely secure. And they continue to resist and as Jesus continues to instruct them with great compassion and clarity, they can. All it did was harden them. See, that's the only two uh, only two responses one can have to the gospel: either to be converted by hearing, or hardened by unbelief. Two responses to the gospel. Every time someone hears the gospel, every time someone accurately preaches the gospel from the text, there will be two responses. People will be hardened in their unbelief or they will be converted. And that's what we're up against in Holy Week. The awareness, the awareness that both of those things are happening. By the way, in John chapter 8, the conversation gets only more intense. It escalates to the point that by John chapter uh, 8, uh, verse 59, they pick up stones and try to kill Jesus. Think of that. Jesus was essentially holding a membership class. These people had professed belief in him. And Jesus said, okay, well, let's have a membership class here so that you know what you mean, so you can understand what it means to profess belief in me. And as he begins to explain to them what it means to profess belief in him, they say, no, 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 no. We don't, we don't, we're not coming on those terms. They, the conversation escalates. It gets more intense. It gets more vicious on their part to the point where they pick up stones and try to kill the one, the very one that they confessed in verse 31 of John chapter 8 to believe in. So, so much of what we're doing here in these Holy Week lessons is we're recognizing false religion, 
false Judaism in the first century and false Christianity as both being in opposition to Christ. And the glory and the wonder and the blessedness that we stand by grace alone according to the mercy of God alone in his Son. That's why we are not in the system that opposes him. That's why we are not one of those who profess belief in him, but see no need of him as a Savior, our only Savior, our only King, our only High Priest, as so many do today. They're part of a system, a hardened system, that sees no need of Jesus. Though they profess his name, though they say they believe in him, they see no need of him. And so they stand in the system that opposes him. And the fact that if you are not in that system, if you are not in that position today, it is because of God's tender mercies and grace. We stand by grace through faith. So let us finish now briefly, real quickly now. I don't want to go too long. Have faith in God. That's the point. Jesus is telling his disciples, what I just cursed in this fig tree is the appearances of religion that has no fruit because it's not a system based on faith. It's a system based upon self-accrued righteousness, which will never be fruitful. Never be fruitful. It'll have the appearance of religion, but never bear genuine fruit. It's only worthy of being accursed. Remember that Galatians chapter 1, Paul cursed another gospel twice knowing that it would be poison fruit. False gospels produce fruit, all right, but it's poison fruit. It's useless fruit. It's deadly fruit. Jesus curses it. Have faith in God. So Jesus is introducing again to his disciples that we stand by faith. We are not standing by any inherent virtue of our own or any accrued righteousness that we have been able to accrue over the years. We have nothing. Romans 1, 16 and 17 tells us that salvation has come, by righteousness comes by faith, from faith to faith. It begins in faith, it ends in faith. It's always by faith. It's always by grace. And the mountain that you must have faith, if you have proper faith, the mountain that you overcome here is not daily circumstances and daily challenges of life. Truly I say to you, whoever says that this mountain be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. The mountain that stands before you that can only be overcome by faith is false religion. The world. The devil. And its systems of religion. And it's only by faith that you can say to this mountain, 
be taken up and cast into the sea. And it's a faith that comes to you as a gift of God. By grace, through faith alone. That's the deal. Well, we're going to pause there. I don't want to keep you too long. I'm trying to keep these lessons to 30 to 35 minutes. So we'll pick this up here in the next lesson, episode 4, as we continue our journey with Jesus through Holy Week. Amen.